The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm delighted to be joined by Seb Kennedy, who is founding editor of Energy Flux News. And we're going to be talking about America's gas and its role in the conflict in Ukraine. Seb, today we learned that America is going to provide a large amount of LNG gas to Europe to help alleviate the energy crisis that is worsening here. My impression from a few weeks ago was that the Americans weren't quite ready to be exporting enough LNG because there was a row about whether it was down to Biden's Green New Deal or whatever, that um, they weren't actually producing enough to solve the gas crisis themselves. Am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. I mean, American liquefied natural gas export plants are operating pretty much at full capacity. The gas goes all over the world. It goes to Europe, it goes to Asia, it goes to South America, wherever they can get the highest netbacks, so the, the biggest profits. So depending on the price, the cargoes tend to follow the money. Yeah, whenever the price spikes in Europe, then the cargoes come over here. And when the price spikes in North Asia, China, Japan then the cargoes go over there. So this idea that they're going to the European Union is going to buy a huge amount of extra LNG from the US this year just inevitably means that other parts of the world are going to have to go without some gas and there's not really much of a conversation around well how are you going to outbid China if you do how will the Chinese keep the their homes warm and factories running through the winter or, you know, in Brazil, they use a lot of LNG when they have a drought, which happens with increasing frequency because they re- rely on hydropower. So if you kind of deprive other parts of the world of LNG to fill in the gaps in their energy systems, then how are they going to cope? I understood that China was getting quite a lot of cheap gas from Russia already, hydrocarbons from Russia and from the Central Asian states. Does China really need American gas at that level? Yeah, so, so Chinese gas demand is growing very strongly it's grown easily kind of seven eight ten percent per year consistently over kind of the second half of the last decade and that it's showing no signs of stopping so it's not just about american lng it's about you know the kind of the overall supply demand balance mm. and that that balance in the market is extremely tight at the moment which is why you're seeing these incredibly inflated prices not just in europe but the lng spot price is is extremely elevated compared to like historical norms right now and and that's because there's this enormous demand and supply takes a long time to come on stream and it can't easily be ramped up and uh, ramped up in response to, to these demand spikes. So you have prices kind of becoming detached almost from reality and they keep spiralling up until demand, you get what's called demand destruction. So when prices go out of control, people start to, to scale back their consumption of gas because it's just becoming too expensive. And you see that in the industrial sector first. So factories are the first ones to close down. We've seen that in China. We've seen that in Europe. 
and uh, the longer prices stay with these kind of incredible war premiums which are inflating the cost of gas and the more demand destruction you're going to see and that's the question it's like how does the market balance is it going to be a question of you know the the, the last man standing is the only one that can afford to pay 100 200 300 euros per per megawatt hour of gas and if it comes to that then you're talking about you know kind of not just a cost of living crisis but a real kind of energy expensive energy induced recession across probably much of the western world and is it fair to say the spot market that we use in in europe to buy energy it's it's not it's not working very well because when there's a crisis prices go so high that they, they collapse everything and that you know old soviet economies and i don't know what china does i'd be interested if you could tell me they would buy at a fixed price for a much longer time period and obviously that's not as attractive to free marketeers but it does bring a bit of stability to something that's essential to to the global economy. Yeah, so there are fundamental trade-offs in design of energy markets. You have security of supply and reliability versus uh, cost efficiency, and there there are trade-offs. So the European, UK kind of European model has been liberalisation, let's have short-term contracts, let's have spot trading, and that ensures that you get the cheapest marginal molecule at any given moment. So, you know, it's, it's like there's a merit order. So the cheapest sources of energy are the ones that get a chance to, to dispatch into the market first. And then you kind of go up the cost curve until demand is satisfied. So you only get the cheapest energy being dispatched at any given moment. What that means is that when supply and demand become extremely tight, that prices go just off the charts is what we're seeing right now, because there's there's this kind of yes fundamental tightness in 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 like the amount of supply not be really being able to satisfy the demand effect cost effectively so you, you what you're essentially doing is you're outsourcing security of supply to the market and that means that you have to pay these incredibly painful prices when there's there's not much supply the flip side of course is that this system works extremely well for consumers in times of abundance so during the COVID-19 lockdowns, the first phase of the COVID lockdowns, when demand crashed, energy demand, then you saw prices, like natural gas prices, came plummeting down to, you know, just to give an example, right, right now, the, the TTF, which is the kind of European benchmark, is about 110 euros per megawatt hour. That went down to, like, single digits. And we had just a kind of glut of gas. It was extremely cheap and the consumer benefits right so the trade it's it's all like kind of swings and roundabouts whereas the system you've described where you have like kind of long-term contracts fixed prices not so much volatility then you don't the consumer doesn't win in times of abundance because you're kind of tied to paying these these prices that cover the long-run marginal cost of production but in times of scarcity you have the guarantee that those molecules or those electrons will be there so it again it's a trade off you know you don't have these wild price swings so the question is what do you prefer and and because we have such short attention spans then whenever there's a crisis people say this system is brilliant or this system is awful but you've got to take a step back and consider it in the round it's like well when energy is really cheap then you love having cheap energy right so it's probably like a, a question to put to an economist like which is the better kind of overall system to to govern our energy supplies from and and there seems to be a kind of a, a change in sentiment in Europe around what do we want because until now it's all been about yeah you know, we'll have like kind of short term trading but today the commission has said we will support the construction investment of new liquefied natural gas plants in the US by signing long term contracts actually said we're going to going to support European companies to to sign long-term contracts 
So that's that's a departure in rhetoric, and it's kind of a departure in energy system thinking and planning as well. It's, I mean, I see what you mean about people sort of getting overexcited either way the market goes, but isn't that down on the larger, or, or, or not even necessarily larger, energy companies and their ability to store energy? I mean, when there are times of plenty and prices are low, should they not be able to store gas at a, at a larger volume for the times when supply is weaker? Yeah, so storage is a funny one because there's only ever an incentive to store gas when the price is low or lower than you think it's going to be in the future because nobody puts gas away to sell it at a loss later unless they're forced to and they are subsidised to do so. And until now, that's been the missing element across much of Europe. That's that's not entirely true because I think Italy and France have slightly different gas storage regulations which do place, place more of a mandate on adequate storage levels but across much of uh, the rest of Europe, then, then there is no kind of obligation. And that's something the Commission is also looking at. It's like, we want to have an obligation that you reach 90% full gas storage levels by the 1st of November every year. And that's fine, but it's, it's like the question is, you know, who is going to, to, to cover the cost of doing that? Because at the moment, gas is extremely expensive. And so the only economic logic in in putting gas into storage at 110 euros per megawatt hour is if you think it's going to cost 120 or 130 come come December. And if that's the case, then then you have to really be looking at, again, that demand destruction question, because who can afford to to withdraw gas and burn it if it's been bought during a bidding war in in, in the summer months with, with China trying to kind of lure spot cargoes over to Asia? You could easily see this 110 euro megawatt hour figure going much, much higher in the short term while we're trying to fill up the gas stores. So, you know, you could be injecting gas at 200 euros per megawatt hour, 300 per megawatt hour. Like the, the, there is no ceiling to this thing anymore. The prices are going completely, completely insane. And when the bidding war really begins with, with Asia over the summer to refill European gas stocks, then, then you, you've got to be asking the question, you know, who who is going to be paying for this gas? Who's going to be covering the cost of this gas? If you're an energy company in America, an LNG gas shale gas company in America, it suits you, right, to have a high price like this. So, so the the current crisis is good for a very important part of the American economy, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. But there are there are lots of sort of caveats to that, if you like. An example that the U.S consumers might like to be aware of is the example of Australia which developed a lot of LNG export capacity on its east coast and what that does is like they used to have lots of kind of just gas that was stayed in the domestic market as soon as you start linking up your gas with global markets then global pricing your local market becomes more exposed more linked to global pricing so when the the spot price in Asia the LNG spot price in Asia rose very strongly in the winter, then then you found that that people in Queensland were paying a lot more for their local gas because the gas exporters had the option of I can sell it to you for three dollars or I can sell it to China for twenty. So they'll sell it to China for twenty, and then that brings up the local price. At the moment, the U.S. is is relatively shielded from from those global price swings because it has this massive production base of shale gas, and so you're seeing prices on the Henby hub which is the the kind of the virtual trading point for the gulf coast you're seeing though that figure it's sort of in like five dollars per million british thermal units and that that's like relatively high but it's only gone up by a couple of dollars whereas you know in in europe it's kind of 36 that 110 euro megawatt hour figure i was talking about that's about 36 
dollars per MBTU. So the price of gas in Europe is uh, about seven times higher than the price of wholesale gas in the US. And you're going to see as the US builds more liquefaction capacity and starts exporting more gas to Europe, then the price, the, that, that kind of, that differential between the price of gas in America and the price of gas in Europe is going to narrow. And you're going to see that when like, the price of TTF goes really, really, really insanely high, that's going to be dragging up the price that US consumers have to pay for their gas at home. And uh, you're going to see some pushback on that. And you're already seeing some small signs of that with some industrial users are trying to lobby Washington to, uh, to actually put a cap on US energy exports. That looks highly unlikely now. But let's wait five years and wait for all these new projects to come online, start exporting gas and, s- and see what the effect is on the local price, the local economy. And it might be a very different political question at that time. But American gas is more expensive to produce, is it not? So in times of abundance or even just in normal times where there's no war and no sanctions, is it possible for American gas to compete with Asian or, or Russian hydrocarbon exports? No, you're right. And I go back to the, the example of COVID. So we're in the lockdowns, when there was just too much gas, there's nowhere to put it. And there was so much liquefied natural gas kind of floating around the market, people were just buying up or uh, using you know, LNG vessels as storage, like floating storage. And when those became full, and all the storage tanks were full, then the least economic projects started to shut down. So it kind of went down the merit order. So the, the, the most expensive ones shut down first. And, and the big swing producers were the US LNG plants. And we saw lots and lots of cargoes being cancelled and liquefaction plants actually kind of running at reduced utilisation rates or even just shutting down for periods because they, they just couldn't operate in that economic environment. The price was too low. So yeah, the, they need prices to be at a certain level for it to be economically viable for them to operate. But at the same time, the, the buyers who are on the hook for these, these, uh, these cargoes, that's the other thing, like the contracts that underpin the cargoes that are bought from the US, they do put an obligation on the buyer to take or pay a certain amount of gas. So while the, the actual plants were shutting down, the money was still flowing into them. And uh, we saw many, many, many millions of dollars, it might even have been $50 million by memory, being paid by buyers who are under contract with US LNG exporters for cargoes that were never delivered because they had nowhere to put them. So it's not necessarily a case that, you know, when the price goes down and, and, and they can't produce, that they, they lose all their money. It's, it's more a case of like, look who's holding the contract, look who's the bag holder here. Yeah. Is there truth in the argument, you often hear it advanced, that governments all over the world have put far too much confidence in the ability of renewable energy to deliver the amount of energy that we need to keep our economies going and that now we're sort of we're, we're reaping a bitter harvest now because renewables while they may be the solution in the future their ability to do what we need them to do is still a long way off and governments have perhaps been a little bit too optimistic in thinking how quickly that renewables will be able to fix our problems yeah i'd be inclined to agree with that but what i would be very careful to caution against is blaming renewables i don't think that renewables are to blame because we when you add renewables to the system then you're just you're adding more energy it's not it's not a case of them somehow kind of being inherently bad but there are issues you're right around this sense of we can we can rely on variable output renewable power sources to balance grids when they do need backup and so that does require a certain amount of flexible plant dispatch onto the grid at any given time to to make up for you know cloud cover over solar panels and periods of low wind i think that the less 
discussed phenomenon that we're really kind of reaping the harvest of is this kind of very, very steady and consistent reduction in domestic production of oil and gas from the region of Europe. So that includes kind of like Norway, the UK. Domestic production of gas in Europe is, is in secular decline. And that's really like what has exposed Europe mostly to these kind of bouts of volatility, this kind of market insanity, because when you have a system that's designed to rely on gas and you're producing less of it, then by default, you are relying more on imports, on the availability of imports. So there's this structural dependency on, 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 it, on gas imports that's going up and up and up every year. So, so renewables have helped to offset some of that reliance but they can't cover all of it, you're right, and they also need backup, so they need to have that kind of solid, firm capacity to be available at any given time. I mean, what would be the time frame, do you think, for problems like these? Because one would have thought 10 years ago we wouldn't be having energy crises like these because a lot of people thought renewables were going to provide it and that the market would always find a way around these problems. Do you think in 10 years' time we'll still be having problems with hydrocarbon supply and and demand. Yes, the energy transition, as it's called, the, cl- the transition to cleaner forms of energy, it, it was never going to be this kind of lovely, smooth transition from one system to another. It was always going to be volatile because energy requires long-term perspectives to be clear to underpin investment. You need long-term certainty of demand, of fiscal regime, of kind of general political attitudes towards certain sources of energy. That, that gives investors the confidence to invest. It gives banks the certainty to, to lend money to, to, to assets that are going to be built. Yeah. And, and yeah, the transition, it's, it's going to be messy because you're coming up against vested interests. You have kind of real kind of flip-flopping from politicians in terms of what they really want. And you're seeing a great example of that right now. You know, every time energy security comes onto the agenda, then suddenly kind of the environmental concerns seem to take the back seat. And so it's very difficult to invest on the basis of that because you don't know whether, you know, today's sentiment towards security of supply is going to vanish tomorrow in a times of abundance. And it's going to be like, oh no, it's all about emissions again. So I, I think we're going to be having these conversations probably for the next 20, 30 years. Do you think um, Joe Biden got quite badly criticised when the cost of living crisis was really kicking in because of the, the, his green agenda? You, just, you think that's a bit simplistic and political then? Nothing is simple in energy. It's very political. It's so easy to carve a narrative according to your predisposition. And you see that time and again in the energy debate. It's very easy to be swayed one way or the other by certain arguments. The, the Green New Deal, I mean, that, that's like none of that has been implemented yet. And yet you have people on a certain part of the commentariat trying to blame it for all of the, the, the ills that are happening in the energy market today when these are really the product of choices that were made over the last 10 or 20 years. So, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that like the kind of Build Back Better programme, I'm sure it's not perfect, and I'm sure that, that there are elements in there that, that can be improved and that, that might, you know, they might put emissions at odds with energy security. I don't doubt that for a minute. But I, I think we need to kind of take a step back and just remember that where we are is not the result of legislation that's still yet to be signed off. I mean, in Britain, people are, and in America too, people talk a lot about nuclear power and, and as that, that is the only solution really now for the, for the current crisis. Is that realistic talk? Well, the current crisis 
is happening 10 years before any new nuclear plant that's authorised today is ha- stands any chance of generating electrons. Like I said, the lead times on, on energy investments are extremely long and, and probably none, none longer than, than nuclear. Yet nuclear is, is perennially attractive. You know, it's, it's kind of zero emissions or near zero emissions, base load, reliable, it can produce at scale, at volume, and uh, depending on your the fuel source, if you can get uranium from a uh, like processed uranium from a from a friendly supplier, then then you know it ticks all the boxes around like geostrategic allegiances and energy security emissions. It's it is it is like a wonderful solution on on those terms. But then there are, again there are just so many caveats to to nuclear power. There is an unresolved issue around waste disposal. In seismic areas, then it's it's problematic. Just look at Fukushima in Japan, and that's not quite so relevant in Europe. And there are, you know, like like so, just looking at Russia, for example, Russia has a big stranglehold over the amount of uranium processing capacity in the world. And if you are, you know, reliant on Russia for your for nuclear fuel, then that's leverage to a regime that you clearly don't want to be doing business with now. But sorry, you said at the beginning it is possible to get uranium from friendly states if you can get your fuel from a friendly regime then 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 that's great but if you're getting it from russia then it's not so we'll leave it there but thank you very much for coming on to americano okay my pleasure thanks thank you very much for listening to that episode of americano if you enjoyed it please subscribe and if you really enjoyed it please leave us a star rating preferably five stars and a review (laughs) 